Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, and I have to share with you there's a word, the very first word of Mark chapter 7, verse 1, which is not in our English translations. Now you may be able to search far and wide, perhaps there's a translation out there. I looked through several, never found one that starts with the correct word. The word is not the, the word is and. Mark chapter 7, verse 1, begins with the word and. It's chi in the Greek. It's not reflected in our translations, but it's absolutely critical because Mark connects in writing this gospel, perhaps based on the sermons of Peter, as we've talked about, connects what ends chapter 6 with what begins chapter 7. And I think that's critical to recognize. So look at verse 56 of Mark chapter 6. We'll start there. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside... They were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak and as many touched it were being cured. And the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem. Why is that so important? Because all over the country, as we've been reading the first six chapters of the Gospel of Mark, all over the country, the demonized were being delivered. And the hurting were being healed. And the famished, 5,000 of them or more, were being fed. Remarkable things were happening when they land at the shore at Gennesaret which is just right there on the shore of the Galilee, they land there. The people from all over are just... They're, they're, the masses are collecting around Jesus. They're coming to Him. They want to be with Him. The ministry of Jesus, by the time we hit chapter 7 of Mark, is exploding. I mean, this is a radical thing that is happening. His poll numbers are surging in the all-important swing villages. As much as across the entire country. But the reason why the end is important here is as his popularity is swelling among the common people, his opposition is also swelling. That is the opposition of the, what I call, the Judean elite. The opposition of the establishment. And so they dispatch a delegation from Jerusalem to go check Jesus out. And the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem. Now this is the second delegation dispatched from Jerusalem. We already saw the first debate debacle back in chapter 2. That did not go well. Now as chapter 7 begins, they come at him for a second debate. (laughs) My, how that parallels life. They seek to undermine his campaign. Now see, that's what's going on. The delegation sent from Jerusalem, these Pharisees and scribes are not there because they're interested in getting to know Jesus. They're there to find fault. They're there to see what they can pin to Him. What they can tie to Him. They're there to undermine all that He is doing. The Pharisees. The Greek word is Pharisaeus. The Hebrew word for the Pharisees is parash. The parash. Most frequently, the word parash in the Hebrew means to make distinct or to declare separate. Pharisaeus in the Greek means the same. To make distinct or to declare separate. And that's what the Pharisees said. We are a distinct class of rulers and we are the the high-minded, faithful, holy ones of Israel. The parash, the Pharisaeus. In the causative form, which I know you track these things... (laughs) 
The causative form of the Greek, this word pharisaos can also mean to scatter, which I find interesting. In the passive form, it can mean something else altogether, and it's used this way. Pharisaos, parash, in the passive can mean to bite, to sting, or to pierce. And they come after Jesus that way. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. What is that one word, Bible students? Love. The entirety of Scripture, all of the Bible, is fulfilled in one word. Love. That is it. If you're reading the Bible and you're not getting love, you're not paying attention. Because that is the sum total of the whole thing. Paul says it in Galatians 5. Jesus says it in Matthew 22, Mark 12. We'll see that later tonight. It is all about love. Paul says it's fulfilled. Here's the statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do this, Paul says, it will fulfill the law. Jesus says love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And on this, the entire law and the prophets hang. The whole of the Hebrew Scriptures hangs on those two commands. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. But Paul says this in Galatians 5.15, But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. It's religious cannibalism. For those who bite and devour, and that's what the Pharisees have come to do. The Pharisees, whose, whose very title means either to make distinct or to scatter or to bite. And they're coming to bite at Jesus. And there's a major problem with the Pharisees that comes out plain and clear in this chapter. It's highlighted here. And that is tradition. Tradition. (laughs) Tevye said it exactly right. It was legalism lording over love for the Pharisees. Rules ran over relationship. Tradition trounced tenderness. And that was their problem. They came to the Scriptures. But rather than seeing the love in the Scriptures, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, they surrounded the Scriptures feeling that they had to protect the Scriptures and they lost sight of the Scriptures. I'll show you how. So this delegation, they didn't come to get to know Jesus. Any Pharisees that truly sought to know Jesus for who He was became followers, like Nicodemus. Nicodemus pursues Jesus. John chapter 3 wants to know something about him. Meets him at night because, you know, it could hurt his reputation, but meets him at night, talks to him, and he's enthralled with Jesus. And Nicodemus later will become one of Jesus' followers. And you know, that's really what happens. If people will come to Jesus just to find out who he is. Introduce, hi, my name's Rick, and I, I hear that your name is Jesus. I'd just like to get to know you. If you approach Jesus with the desire to truly get to know him, he will change your life. If you approach Jesus with the desire to pick Him apart, pin something on Him, or undermine His ministry, if you bite at Him, if you try to devour, you're going to devour yourself. You're going to become destroyed in the meantime by your own bitterness, by your own biting. And that's exactly what happens to the Jewish leadership. The scribes, the Pharisees, even the Sadducees, the more they tried to bite Jesus, the more they sought to pierce Him, and ultimately they would see Him pierced on the cross, the more they devoured themselves until ultimately it led to their destruction. I believe you can absolutely tie a cause and effect to what happened. Jesus came to Israel. He came to save Israel. But when Israel said no, it was to their own demise. They cut off the very one who could save them. 
from the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, from the diaspora, the driving out, Jesus came first to the Jew to save Israel. Not only to save Israel eternally, I mean, that's the big picture, and he's still working on that. But to save Israel immediately and have the people of Israel turn to him just as they did back in Isaiah's day. Just as Hezekiah and the people turned to the Lord and they repented and they fell down before the Lord and he wiped out that 185,000 of Assyria in the same way that that could have happened. You think Rome was too strong for Jesus? Absolutely not. But when you bite the very hand that feeds you, when you dismiss the one who can save, it is to your own destruction. Jesus said in Matthew 23:37, of the Jewish people of Jerusalem, he cried out, he wept literally, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you. How often I wanted to gather your children together at the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were unwilling. Here's my part, Jesus says. I wanted to gather you in. I wanted to give you complete and total protection, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. And truly, the house was raised to the ground. The temple became a desolate place. Behold, your house is left desolate. I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so here come the Pharisees to bite and to devour, to pick apart the message and see if there's something they could find within the campaign of Jesus to pin on Him and undermine Him. The Pharisees, some of the scribes, gathered around Him when they had come from Jerusalem, verse 2, and had seen that some of His disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. (laughs) Oh no! I mean, my kids would be in trouble. (laughs) Unwashed hands. This is what they got on Jesus. Dirty hands. Your disciples. For all the wonders Jesus was working, for all the miracles, they couldn't see the compassion, they couldn't see the care, they couldn't see the character of the Messiah Christ in Jesus. All they could see was His disciples' dirty hands. But my friends, hygiene was not the issue. Verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. Now that might not seem like a big deal. Let me explain to you what this means. The washing of their hands. They put their hands together, just like this, like we teach oftentimes children to pray. Put your hands together. And they would take one and a half eggshells. I'm not kidding. One and a half eggshells of purified water, and it would be poured by someone else over the hands, over the tips of the fingers, and it would run on down the hands, down until it got down to about the wrist. And then they would turn the hands downward and let it drip back over their fingers again. Yeah. And then they took the right hand and they scrubbed it into the left palm. And they took the left hand and they scrubbed it into the right palm. And then they did it again. In other words, lather, rinse, repeat. You you, you get the picture here. (laughs) Every time they ate, eggshell and a half of water. Up, down, rub, rub, up, down, rub, rub. And and that's where the Macarena came from. I'm I'm convinced of it. (laughs) 
the world did they come up with this? This, this ritual. Well, where's the basis in Hebrew Scripture? I'll show you. It's Exodus chapter 30, verse 18. You can just listen to this. Jot it down. Exodus 30, 18. God is giving Moses the prescription for the tabernacle and what's to be done, the preparation of, of the seven pieces of furniture that will be in the tabernacle. I won't go into all those right now. But he says, you shall also make a laver of bronze or a sea of bronze. Basically, a big bronze bowl. Okay, And it's base of bronze for washing. And you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet from it. When they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Or when they approach the altar to minister by offering up in smoke a fire sacrifice to the Lord. That's it. And it has nothing to do with the rest of the Jewish people. And it has nothing to do with eating. It was simply hand and foot washing for the priests as they ministered in the temple. And it wasn't, you know, this way. And it was just wash your hands, wash your feet as a symbol of cleanness and purity when you're serving the Lord in the temple for Aaron and his sons, the Levitical priesthood. That's the law. There's God's law. This is man's law. And this is what man's traditions tend to do. The singularly specific law is for the priests in the temple, not for all the people, but the elders, the forefathers, the patriarchs, the the rabbis and the teachers, really since the people returned from Babylonian captivity. So 400 years prior to this, across that 400 years, had begun to come up with these ways to protect Scripture. These ways to protect the law. Here's the law, but boy, just to make sure we're doing that right, let's just have everybody do it. And before every meal. That way the law, we make sure we don't forget it, we don't miss it. And they would do that. And serious Jews, even today, among the Hasidic Jews, They will still wash their hands that way before every single meal. But it gets thicker. That wasn't enough. It never is when it comes to laws. We're really good. It's not just the Jewish people. We are all really good at laws. Have you seen the laws in Island County lately? (laughs) Do I need to explain to you why we're still sitting in a barn right now instead of in a church building? Because we love laws. Until we're so fenced in we can't budge. And so they came up with even more laws. If you came home from shopping, before you could eat, the simple hand-washing procedure really wasn't enough. You needed to do more. Tradition got out of hand, literally. Watch this, verse 4. And when they come home from the marketplace, thank you those of you who caught that, when they come home from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The word cleanse there. What does that mean? The word cleanse is baptizo. What does that mean? Baptize. Well, what does it mean in the Greek? Immerse. Submerge. The word that we have, the English transliteration, baptize, is the Greek word baptizo, and it means to be completely submerged in water. That's why, by the way, we baptize by immersion in our fellowship. Because that's what the word means, very simply. Baptizo. So, what is this? It's the mikvah bath. We've talked about before, the Jewish mikvah. 
The mikvah was a cleansing ritual that the Jewish people went through. It described a pool, literally, that they would, with steps going down and steps coming back up, and they would go down into the bath, dunk down, and come back up out of the bath. You can see on the south side of the Temple Mount today in Jerusalem, you can see the Jewish mikvah bath. It's right there. In fact, there are several of them, and as the people came to go up to temple, they would go down into the bath, dunk themselves, come back up and out, and then they could go into the temple. Now, I understand that. I understand that the picture of, of spiritual cleansing and washing before you go into temple, but it was so serious with the Pharisees that if they were at the marketplace and they came home and the wife had just cooked dinner, they'd have to go take a bath first. Every single time. They took it very seriously at Qumran, also in Israel, the, the place where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. There was a group of men who lived there, and they had mikvah baths. And you can see those as well. You can see the, the place that was dug down, steps going down, steps coming back out. And these men would go down into the mikvah bath. They would mikvah in the morning, mikvah at the noontime, mikvah all day long. Before they worked, they went into the mikvah bath. Before they ate, they went into the mikvah bath. Constantly, they were called the Essenes, but for all their bathing, I think they should have probably been called the Raisins. (laughs) Because they're always down in the water. What's the deal with this? All of that, and far more when it comes to cleansing rituals in Hebrew teaching in Talmud, comes from one verse in the Bible intended for the priesthood in their service. All those laws. Now some might say, well, okay, Pastor Rick, isn't your adherence to baptism by immersion, isn't that kind of pharisaical? Not at all. And let me explain to you the difference. Listen to Jesus, verse 05. That's where we are. Verse 5. The Pharisees and the scribes then asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Tradition and eat their bread with impure hands. And Jesus said to them, Rightly did Isaiah the prophet prophesy of you hypocrites. Hypocrite, that's a tough word. The word hypocritus, it's like that. Similar to hypocrites. In the Greek, it means literally mask wearers. It's the same word that was used for actors. Jesus was calling them actors. You are playing at a relationship. You are pretentious in your religion. You're wearing a mask. You're not real. You're not genuine in your faith. He says, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. When the Bible uses the word doctrine, gang, doctrine is an absolutely serious word. Doctrine is a good word, by the way. We need to be a people of sound doctrine. The doctrine, the teaching of the word. We need to know it to be true and absolute. Sound doctrine. Alright? But Jesus says, quoting Isaiah, you're teaching as doctrines, the precepts of men. And then he says this, don't miss it, neglecting the commandment of God... You hold to the tradition of men. A couple of things to note in this. First of all, the Pharisees and scribes commandeered the authority of the Word of God. 
You know what it means to commandeer. A police officer might have to do that. If they need a vehicle to chase someone down and they pull you over the side of the road, you roll down your window and say, I need to commandeer your vehicle. And then you get into the passenger seat and go, let's go. It can be fun. They commandeered the authority of the word. Warren Wiersbe in his commentary said the following. He quotes from Rabbi Eliezer, a rabbi contemporary somewhere around the first century. Rabbi Eliezer said, quote, He who expounds the scriptures in opposition to the tradition has no share in the world to come. You catch that? If you teach the Bible in some way opposing what our rabbis have said the Bible says, you don't get to go to heaven. That's what Rabbi Eliezer taught. The Jews literally called their traditions, and some do today, their tradition, the fence of the law. Tradition! We're building a fence around the law because we've got to keep it safe. Now, I applaud the Jewish people on this count. They did keep the word. Oh, I don't mean necessarily in their personal lives, but they kept it. They kept the Hebrew Scriptures all down through the centuries, copying and recopying, careful, meticulous to copy it correctly. And we know that because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Copy of Isaiah from the time of the Essenes that is exact as the Isaiah we have today with maybe one or two tiny little spelling errors. Amazing. They kept the law. They fenced in the law. But here's where it became a problem and can be for you and for me. Any doctrine of man's making, any teaching of man which supersedes, overrules, or commandeers the inspired Word of God is not only dangerous, it is heresy. And we see it all the time. And no one bats an eyelash at it. The traditions of the elders had become so packed thick around the law that that fence was a massive wall. You couldn't even get through it to see what the law really said. There's too many traditions in the way. And so even faithful Jewish people today, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for Israel, you know this about me, but Jewish people today spend all of their time in the study of Talmud never getting to Scripture. Talmud, the fence, the traditions built up around the law. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That's why we have Scripture. So that we can be adequate based on our knowing, our understanding of God's Word, not of what everybody has to say about God's Word. And this is why I have said time and again, I really struggle with extra-biblical books, by Christian authors even. And there's some great stuff out there. I'm not saying we shouldn't read some of these books and be encouraged, but it is absolutely amazing how often these books will take us away from Scripture or block us from getting to Scripture. And I still don't get why we would want to listen to the precepts of man when we have the Word of God. And yet that's the problem with the Pharisees. That's what Jesus is getting at. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. The Mishnah, which is the oral tradition, and it's written in the Talmud, the Jewish Mishnah actually says this, It is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than it is to contradict Scripture. 
They've actually gotten to the point now where the rabbi's teaching is greater than the Word of God. Boy, I'm glad we don't do that in Christianity. We laugh because we know we do. Because it has happened in the church in all aspects, in many arms of the church. Now, people will say, aren't there traditions in the Christian life? Yes, there are some. And there is a distinction between that tradition, tradition which is good and that tradition which is bad. Baptism is a tradition, a doctrinally sound tradition. Why? Because it was given to us by God. And by the way, I believe baptism by immersion is biblical. Why? Because that's what the word means. Not to get into any kind of theological debate over what the church has chosen to call baptism over the last 2,000 years. Some will say, well, baptism is sprinkling. Some say, just pour a little pitcher over someone's head. Some say they need to be dunk. Some say dunk forward. Some say dunk backward. The word just means immerse. I don't care how you're getting immersed. In fact, some of you know this. There used to be a slide out in the pond, and I thought that'd be a great way to baptize people. <laughs> in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Ah! <laughs> Might be a little sacrilegious, I don't know. But the word means immersion, but man's tradition changed it. The sprinkling that goes on in churches today is based on man's tradition, not based on God's word. Well, that's being legalistic. It's not legalistic if it's God's word. It's legalistic if it's man's traditions fencing in God's word. I'm just saying. Second Thessalonians 2.15, Paul says, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by a letter from us. And the word word there is logos. So the traditions that you have been taught, whether by the word or by a letter from us, Paul says, who is the us? It's the apostles. Who were the last, those twelve, including Paul himself, who were many of whom were inspired to write what we now have in the New Testament. Hold to those traditions, absolutely. Paul refers to those doctrines handed down, not by man's tradition, but by the divine inspiration of Scripture. Hold to those traditions. But if I say, hey, I think baptism is a good idea. So let's up the ante. Let's get baptized every time before someone walks in the door of the barn. We'll have a little baptistry out there and we'll say, you got a mikvah before you can come in here. Alright? Why not? I mean, if baptism is a good idea, once in your life, why not every time we worship? Hey, why stop there? Let's do a mikvah bath every day when we get up. And every time we're about to eat a meal, we can go in a mikvah bath. We can be the Essenes, the Raisins. We can be these people. It's man's tradition, and it's ridiculous. Gang, when we go extra-biblical, life gets extra-burdensome. God's Word is not a burden. God's Word is not weighty and heavy. Oh, i got to do that now, and i got to do this. That's not the Word of God. What is the single word that sums up the entire Word of God? Love. 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 Praise the Lord, that sums up the whole thing. Because His commandments are not burdensome. By the way, Jesus is quoting there in verse 6, Isaiah 29, verse 3. If you remember our study through Isaiah, that verse is plucked out. Jesus pulls it out of right smack dab in the middle of Isaiah's book of woes. The book of woes is where the Lord is warning His people against the very thing the Pharisees were doing. 
Jesus wasn't just shooting off a verse that popped into his head. He was reaching back to the very warning God had given Israel against Pharisaical thinking. And he pulls it into context. He says, see, this is what I was talking about back then. This is what the problem is now. Commandeering the authority of the Word. And because of this, in verse 9, Jesus continues saying, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. Whoa, that's serious business. Yeah, God elevated the respect children should give their parents. He elevated the role of parent. Isn't it interesting in our society that the role of parent is being denigrated? Which is what happens when a society turns away from the truth of God. Parents are undermined. You can't discipline your children. Did you know in California... Did I mention this last week? I don't know if I did. California just passed a law which says that children under the age of 18 who have homosexual leanings are not, you cannot take them to a counselor to counsel them against homosexuality. It is illegal to do that. Which means a parent of an 11-year-old child who is sexually confused cannot take that child to their pastor to talk about God's plan for man and woman. You can't do it. It's illegal. In the state of California, welcome to our free country. The role of the parent is coming down. God says, Jesus points this out, you honor your father and mother. He who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, talking to the Pharisees, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you is korban, (laughs) that is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition which you have handed down and you do many such things as that. You catch what Jesus said. Your traditions invalidate the word of God. What does that mean? It means, secondly, not only did they commandeer the authority of the word, but they cashed out the compassion of the word. There is compassion in the Lord saying, honor your father and mother. Take care of them. Mom and dad took care of you, provided for you, raised you up. Now it's your turn. But the Pharisees were very clever. They said, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Korban. My estate. That which I own. My financial holdings. They're they're korban. What does korban mean? Dedicated to God. Korban is just the Hebrew word for gift. The korban. No, no, no. My house, that's that's a gift to the Lord. I I use that in service to the Lord. I'd love to help you out. You know, mom and dad, I know, I know you're struggling financially, but, but my finances, they're korban. And so they had this word that they used to get them out of following God's word, while at the same time making them feel all high and holy. And they completely missed the compassion of God by dedicating their holdings to so-called the work of God. Their traditions cashed out the compassion. Jesus said, Mark 12, 28. After one of the scribes there asked Jesus, What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus said, The foremost is here, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. That's it. And the Pharisees violated that very commandment. I'm going to hold on to my stuff and say it's Korban. And therefore, I will not show the respect and the honor due my parents. 
Jesus made it clear that the Word of God was given to proclaim the love of God, to portray the compassion of God. Nothing mattered more. So they commandeered commandeered the Word's authority, they cashed out its compassion, and ultimately, number three, they corrupted the value of the Word. And watch where Jesus goes with this. It may surprise you. Verse 14. After He called the crowd to Him again, He began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. And then he says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. It's a parable. Remember what a parable is? A parable is taking a known truth and setting it aside an unknown truth to explain the unknown truth. Using something common to explain something that may otherwise be a mystery. And it was Jesus' teaching style. That was a parable there, verses 14 and 15. It's a little parable. And as usual, Jesus gave no explanation. He left it to the people to digest what he just said. And as usual, his own disciples didn't digest it well. Let me ask you the question before we read any further. What happens to food? Good food. I want you to think about Thanksgiving. I'm already thinking about Thanksgiving. (laughs) And I want you to picture, if you will, the table set before you. And the turkey's there, and the stuffing, and the cranberry sauce, and the apple and the pumpkin pies are sitting on the counter, and the whole house smells great. And you look at that food, and nothing looks better in the whole wide world. And you eat it. And then what happens? <laughs> Depending on how much you eat. Well, most people would say, well, then you take a nap, you know, because of the, that chemical that's in the turkey that makes you sleepy. I don't know what it is. No, no. Then what happens? Okay. That's what Jesus just said. If you're figuring this out, let me read it to you again. Don't, don't go all spiritual on me yet. Stay in the, in the carnal just for a second. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. Nice, Jesus. You're telling me that that fantastic, wonderful, beautiful meal goes in so well and does not come out the same way. That is exactly what he's saying. Listen to this. When he left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. What did that mean, Lord? He said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated. That's what I meant by that. I was giving you a graphic picture of digestion. You eat something, you get that beautiful golden apple, and you eat the apple, and it does not come out as beautiful as it came in. And I'm being disgusting absolutely on purpose because Jesus is making a disgusting point. It does not go into his heart, into his stomach. It's eliminated. Thus, he declared all foods clean. By the way, he's, he's pre-stating what he will tell Peter in Acts chapter 10, verse 15. Well, God is called clean. Don't call unclean, Peter. You can eat anything you want. And the context here, please understand, is about food. So, listen, the known truth is the digestive process. All food is fine to look at and fine to eat, but it is not fine coming out the other end. He uses this common reality. 
he says this beautiful Thanksgiving dinner goes in, but it comes out defiled. And that's what happens, right? It comes out void of any nutrition whatsoever. It comes out picking up disease on the way oftentimes. It comes out as as not anything appealing at all. Simply put, the unrealized truth Jesus explained is the value of the traditions of man are basically a load of human waste. I mean, it's a graphic parable, but it is absolutely spot on. He says, you guys take your traditions, you overlay them on Scripture, and you corrupt it. You pull the nutrition out of it. You make it disgusting. You fill it with the disease of the heart. I've learned this. We're eating right in my house. Man, are we eating right. (laughs) But I have learned that a healthy intake doesn't make the outgo any more appealing. You can be the healthiest person in the world, always drinking veggie shakes. (laughs) And it doesn't come out good. Am I taking this too far? (laughs) Listen, human traditions and conventions and customs and rituals, as opposed to biblical ones, always end up corrupt. They always end up defiling the pure and perfect truth. So what am I saying? I'm saying keep to the Word. Stick to the Word of God. Because here's the difference. The Word goes into the heart clean. It washes and cleanses the heart. And guess what? When it comes back out, it comes out clean. It goes in clean, it cleanses, it comes out clean. The Word of God is a great cleansing agent. Completely different than the traditions of man, which get all defiled and gross and disgusting. Which is why Job said in Job 23.12, I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I'd rather have my Bible than a burger, is what he's saying. Psalm 119.103 How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Jeremiah 15.16 The prophet said, Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me the joy and the delight of my heart. Because God's word going in comes out good. But the teachings, the traditions, the doctrines of man, all of our bright ideas, guess what? They come from a heart of darkness. And that's Jesus' next point, verse 20. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. What do you think? Do you think Jesus thought man was basically good? (laughs) Absolutely not. Man is depraved. That is the sin condition of the heart. And Jesus was clear about it. And He says in verse 23, all these evil things proceed from within and they defile The man. Spurgeon said, the source from which these rivers of pollution proceed is the natural heart of man. Sin, listen, this is is really good. Sin is not a splash of mud on a man's exterior. It is a filth generated from within himself. Sin is not something that I can, oh, I just got to wash that off and I'll be okay. No, because inside you're worse. 
That's the filth. That's why the sacrifice of Jesus is so absolutely critical. Because only Jesus' blood can wash me from the inside out. Religion says, I just got to wash on the outside. I just need to go into the mikvah. I just need to wash my hands, you know, correctly. And I'll be clean. No, you won't. Your heart is still a filthy mess. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. We sang it a few minutes ago. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Where do you get that, Rick? The Word of God. Which calls it as it is. And that being the case, explain this to me. Why do we so quickly attach ourselves to the teachings and the traditions of men when we have the necessary food of the Word of God? Why are we so quick to run after these things? Allow me to be a little more pointed. Because I've had to struggle with this all week. You might as well struggle with it tonight. (laughs) Have we in the church commandeered the Word of God? Have we cashed out its compassion? Have we corrupted its intrinsic value? I'm going to give you one example. I may have given this before, I don't know. I'm going to give it again. I was in youth ministry in Southern California. I sent a couple of, uh, well I didn't send, but a couple of girls from our youth ministry graduated high school, went off to Azusa Pacific University, north of Anaheim, where I was doing youth ministry at the time, and they began to go to John MacArthur's church. Some of you are big John MacArthur fans. Goody for you. <laughs> Let me just say, John MacArthur is actually an amazing teacher of the word a lot of the time. So they go to his church, they come back, and this I'm, I'm really I'm not actually trying to come down on John MacArthur, but here's the thing that stunned me. They came back on a Sunday. And they came up to me, and it was after the teaching time, and they were talking to me, and this one girl said, you know, I had a question about something you said. She said, hang on a second, let me go get my Johnny Mac. Your, your Mac what? You, I, I figure she's going to come back with like a McDonald's bag or something. She said, let me get my Johnny Mac. I said, what, what do you mean your Johnny Mac? My John MacArthur Bible. Oh, what? And these girls very affectionately referred to their John MacArthur study Bibles as their Johnny Mac. So if you happen to own a John MacArthur study Bible, feel free to call it your Johnny Mac. I got a huge, huge problem with that. Because it is not Johnny Mac's book. (laughs) It is Jesus Christ's Word. It does not belong. It should not be ever, ever, ever be named after a man, my opinion. Thompson's Chain Reference Study Bible. I'm not saying these aren't good tools, gang. But it really concerns me when we attach the name of a man to a book that is not man's book, except that it's been given to us. Listen, you don't, you don't claim eternal life by claiming the name of John MacArthur. You know? Standing before God, why should you go into eternity? John MacArthur. Don't remember seeing Johnny Mac on the cross. You don't get into eternity by claiming the name of Chuck Smith. Well, I went to Chuck Smith's church. I was a Calvary guy. I love Chuck Smith, by the way. I think Calvary is... At least they're teaching the Word. You don't get into heaven by saying, Well, I listen to the teachings of John Carson. I love John Carson. He's one of the best Bible teachers out there. I would encourage you to listen to the teachings of John Carson. Just don't base your salvation on him. You're not going to get into heaven by 
being a five-point Calvinist. <laughs> or three points. Whatever your Calvinistic bent. It's not going to get you in. Claiming Luther will not get you in. Claiming Wycliffe will not get you in. Claiming Wesley will not get you in. Eternity is by Jesus Christ alone. And if we do anything but say this is His book, this is His Word, and by the way, the teachings of Pastor Rick, you better be questioning and opening your Bibles and testing everything that's taught in this barn. And don't you dare ever say, well, Pastor Rick said. Who cares what Pastor Rick said? Well, it was a pretty funny joke. Okay, you can share the jokes. (laughs) It's not my word, my friends. It is God's word. It is His Scripture. It is His teaching, not our traditions. Think about it this way. All these great men, some great women across 2,000 years of church history, and people basing entire movements in the church on these human traditions, on these human beings. Even going back as far as Peter. Guess what? Peter will not save you. He couldn't even save himself (laughs) as he sunk into the water. As he betrayed Christ. Jesus saved him. Going all the way back. Do you realize by the time John wrote the book of Revelation in the mid-90s AD, the church was already very messy. Read Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. Seven letters to seven churches. Historical churches. And there's prophecy there. It's an amazing study. But look at those churches historically. They were messed up, except for Philadelphia. One out of seven churches got fully a positive report. Smyrna got a positive report too, but they were in trouble. They were persecuted big time. All the rest had some serious issues. Serious problems. The first one, the church of Ephesus, had left their first love. Oh, they were good doctrinally, but they weren't loving. Which means, guess what? You're not good doctrinally. Because if your doctrine doesn't translate to a life of love, then your doctrine is wrong. And you're not living your life based on the sound doctrine of the Word of God. Human traditions, human precepts, will defile the Word in the same way that our bodies defile the food that comes into us. Because we have sinful hearts. And our hearts are capable of spewing out mostly just bad stuff, which is why we need the Word constantly coming in. Constantly coming in. That's why I call the teachings of man and the doctrines of the precepts of man heresy. It is only the Word of God that is not heresy. Now, if you're reading a Christian book and it is pointing you back to the Word of God constantly and it is based on the Word of God, great, wonderful, fantastic. i got no problem with that. But be sure it is. Because there's an awful lot of books out there that will take Scripture and twist it to fit their denominational or theological perspective. And it is not God's Word. Take care with your Johnny Max. This is sad but true. I talked to two different people this past week, both who had completely skewed ideas of what the Bible really teaches. One said, the Bible is a chauvinistic book. Um, Those words, exactly. The Bible is a chauvinistic book. And I said, well, tell that to Zelophehad's daughters. Zelahu? <laughs> Numbers 27. Do you remember the story of Zelophehad's daughters? These, these five wonderful daughters. They come up to Moses and they say, Look, um, we have a problem. Our father died in the wilderness, left no sons. And there's just the five of us. And based on the law, we're going to lose our inheritance. 
because there's no man in the family to maintain that inheritance for us. Numbers 27. Listen, in 1500 B.C. when this happened, the entire world, the entire world, God-fearing or pagan alike, the entire world believed that a woman's significance, ladies, check this out, came from her husband or her dad, or if she didn't have a father or a husband, her significance was bound to her brother. Or if she didn't have a brother but had a son, then she was significant because of her son. It was a patriarchal age where the significance or the value of a woman was directly tied to a man in her life. And people say, oh, that's why the Bible's so chauvinistic. It was the entire world. That was the way mankind was thinking as a direct result of the curse in Genesis chapter 3. Zelophehad's daughters are in trouble here because dad is dead. Their, their inheritance in Manasseh, everybody in Manasseh, everybody in every tribe got an allotment of land. And Zelophehad's daughters are saying, we're coming into the promised land. There's not a male in our family, so we're out on the street. What do we do? They bring this to Moses. Moses takes it to the Lord. What does the Lord say? Numbers 27, verse 8, he says, You shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughters. Which gang was absolutely radical in the world of that time. God was the first women's liberator. And he's working with what he had. You know, sometimes you got to do that. you got to work with what you got. And mankind at that point was very, very chauvinistic. And God said, no, 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 we're not going to do it that way. Now you might say, uh, question, why didn't he just give women an inheritance of their own in spite of their sex? And the answer is very simple. Protection. Because in this patriarchal age, women were targets if they didn't have a male protector. And God understood that. And He said, so ladies, I'm going to have you under the inheritance of your dad, or of your husband, or of your brother, for your protection. You still get an inheritance, but they're going to oversee it. So you don't have to worry about it. But in the case of Zelophehad's daughters, or any women who didn't have the male protector, give them their inheritance, because they are as valuable to me, the Lord would say, as any man. Well, how do you know that? Are you reading into it, Rick? No. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 11, Paul, who, by the way, has been called a chauvinist, but is so not a chauvinist, the Apostle Paul says this, In the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. In other words, guys, you're no good without the gals. And gals, you wouldn't be here without the guys. We need each other. By the way, homosexuality isn't just a problem with God because it's sin. It's a problem with God because it undermines the plan of creation. If everybody suddenly said, we're all just going to be homosexual, men stay together, women stay together, guess how long we would last on this earth? Not very. God's design. Man comes from woman, woman comes from man. There's an equality there, and in fact, that equality was only interrupted by the curse in Genesis chapter 3, and Paul turns around and says, again Paul, in Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. Well, how's that possible? Christ removes the curse. So you come into Christ and the curse of sin from the very beginning is gone. 
The curse is gone, therefore, man and woman in Christ are equal once again as God intended. But the Bible is a chauvinistic book. You haven't read it, if that's what you think. The other thing that was told to me this past week, and please bear with me, we're, we're, I just, just got my blood boiling as I read the study and Jesus' words and saw the Pharisees' mentality. Not only was I told the Bible is a chauvinistic book, but I was told that God is a mean-spirited God. And I took a step back just in case he decided to be mean-spirited in that moment. God is a mean-spirited God. Okay. Listen to his self-definition in Exodus 34.6. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate. That is number one on God's self-description. Compassionate. Gracious. Slow to anger. Abounding in loving kindness and truth. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands. And by the way, that's thousands of generations is the implication there. Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And by the way, that is so huge because God doesn't know transgression or iniquity or sin. He has no part with that. And yet He forgives it in us. And then it says, yet He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Which is good news. Do you want the guilty to go unpunished? No, I want the guilty punished. Unless it's me, then I want to be let off. God says, I will bring justice. I am absolutely fair. President Obama is spending a lot of time talking about fairness. God is fair. God is absolutely and always 100% fair. I will bring justice. You've been hurt by somebody? Guess what? I'm going to take care of that. And then he says, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations, which we've talked about before, means that God will come back every single generation and visit that generation to see if that generation has turned to Him or is still walking in the sins of their fathers. They're not going to be judged based on the sins of their fathers unless they choose to walk in them. But God gives every single generation, He keeps coming back time and time again to give people a chance to be saved, to experience His compassion, His love, His slowness to anger, His loving kindness and truth, His grace. That's God. Not a mean-spirited God. Not chauvinistic. Where do people get these ideas? This is what I was asking myself, and I felt very Jewish. Where do they get these ideas? Oi! Hey! Nine hundred and ninety-nine thousand times out of a of whatever nine times out of ten. Just keep it simple for my little brain. Nine times out of ten, they've never read the Bible, and that's why they think the Bible I've heard is chauvinistic, so I won't read it. Well, that's stupid. That's just dumb. I wouldn't say that to a woman because that would make me chauvinistic. Where do they get these things? Or they've heard a, a verse ripped out and someone putting a fence around it and saying, look at it this way. And you're trying to look through this fence and you're not seeing what it really says. Chauvinism is not a godly trait. It's a human trait. Mean-spiritedness, that's a human trait too. So, back to us. Where do people get the idea that God might be chauvinistic or mean-spirited? Well, perhaps from a chauvinistic Christian. Maybe from a mean-spirited pastor. 
Maybe they've looked at the church and they've missed Jesus. The point is, the traditions and precepts of man defile the simple, pure, true Word of God. Keep to the Word. Do what the Word says. Stick to God's Word. Now, as if to drive this point further home, the whole rest of the chapter follows Jesus on a very tender route. Watch this, verse 24. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when He had entered a house, He wanted no one to know. Yet, He could not escape notice. i got to tell you what's going on here. Jesus goes north. Tyre Tyre and Sidon are the region of Lebanon today. He goes up into Lebanon. Obviously, He needs a little downtime. I mean, my goodness sakes, what a life. (laughs) It is just non-stop. And He even tells the apostles, hey, let's come away and get a little rest. They get in the boat, they go across the other side, and the people run around, and there they are waiting for them. More needs, more issues. And if all the ministry and all the power and all the wonders going on, if that wasn't enough, on top of all of that, the Jerusalem Jerusalem delegation keeps showing up, wanting to debate, wanting to argue, wanting to pick at everything that he's doing. So he leaves. I love that. He takes off. He says, I'm out of here. Heads north. Goes up into Lebanon. Matthew 15.21, relating the same story, puts it this way. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Both Mark and Matthew use Greek language that indicates Jesus just didn't cross over the border of Tyre. He went deep into Tyre. He went into Tyre to retire, at least for a bit, to get a break, to find some rest. He heads north and he goes up to the home of a friend where he can be anonymous. No one's going to know me up here. I'm just going to head on up here. Gets to the home of a friend. What friend? We don't know. But he enters a house there and he could not escape notice. And at first I thought, poor Jesus. And then I thought, no, no, that's the way it should be. When Jesus enters your house, it should not escape anybody's notice. When Jesus is in your life, it should not escape notice. Jesus said in John 13.35, By this will all men know that you are my disciples, my followers, if you what? Love one another. Well, how does that tell people that we're your disciples? Because the disciple does what he sees his rabbi, his master, his leader doing. People will know you're my followers if you love one another because they will recognize you love. That's a Jesus trait. And that's where Jesus' trait, through His Word and by His Spirit, starts to get in and change our traits. So people should know. Jesus should not escape notice in our lives. Now watch what happens, verse 25. But after hearing of Him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at His feet. Now the woman, Mark tells us, was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. So we've learned three things about this woman. We know, first of all, that she lives in the region of Tyre. Okay, So she's a citizen of Tyre. We know her race. She is Syrophoenician. So she's not African Phoenician. She's Syrophoenician, so from the northern area. And we know the word Gentile here. You might know this. It's not Gentile. The word in the Greek is Hellenist. Hellenist. Greek. But not Greek by race or, or, or by the nationality, Greek by religion. She's a pagan. 
she's a Hellenist. She believes in the pantheon. Okay, that's where she's coming from. And I, I just need you to know that. Here comes this <laughs> pagan, Syrophoenician woman outside of Israel, not part of the Jewish faith, not part of the Jewish people. And she kept asking him, kept asking. The Greek is specific. It's this ongoing. She's bugging him. She's just asking and asking and asking. She's pleading with him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now, where in the world did a pantheon-believing woman from outside of Israel learn that Jesus could drive a demon out of her daughter? See, word is just spreading like wildfire. That, that is the best way, we talked about last week, that is the best way to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ person to person to person. Not campaign to campaign. Not flyer to flyer. You know? Not revival to revival, person to person. You tell one person, they tell one person, and on it goes. So this woman knew, here comes this Jesus. He's in town, he's at so-and-so's house. i got to talk to him. She goes, she's bugging him. Kept asking him. 27. He was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first. For it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Man, first time I heard that, I thought, Jesus, are you kidding me? Woman's daughter suffering from demon possession, and you make a statement like that? <laughs> Listen, Jesus isn't just sick of people and so being a jerk. That would be a story of when Rick went to Tyre. <laughs> Understand the symbolism. The children here, Jesus says the children should be satisfied first, are the children of Israel, the Jewish people. And he is staying exactly with what he said from the very beginning of his ministry. I have come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel first. That's what he says here. Let the children be satisfied first. I got to minister to them. I got three years. (laughs) I got so little time. I got to get the word out to Israel. It's going to get to you. But not yet. For it is not good to take the children's bread. What is the bread? It's the word. Which is, by the way, both the Word of God as we have in our laps and the Word, the Logos, Jesus Christ Himself. He is the Word. It's not good to take the Word and throw it to the children's dogs. And that's the rough one for us. Dogs, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish folk. Dogs was a Gentile slam against all non-Jews or irreligious people. The Pharisees would have used that word to describe non-Jews. There go the dogs. Who let the dogs out? There they are. Matthew 7, verse 6. Jesus uses it in that context. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Undeserving mongrels. Dogs in in Israel, dogs would roam free and they'd be, you know, skimpy mongrels chewing up and biting things, trying to get, you know, scavengers. Don't give what is holy to dogs. Don't throw your pearls before swine or they'll trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Now in that case, Paul is talking about the Judaizers, which were Christians who were trying to make Christians go back to Jewish tradition. You can be a Christian, but just make sure you keep Talmud. You're washing, right? Okay. Paul calls them dogs. Revelation 22.15 says, Outside are the dogs, and the sorcerers, and the immoral persons, and the murderers, and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. These are outside of the kingdom of heaven. The dogs. 
So I read all that, and, and I hear Jesus say, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I think, wow, that's harsh. That's some rough talk there, Jesus. Wait. There is subtlety here. You Bible students probably know this. Dogs was indeed a derogatory term, but that's not the term Jesus used. The Greek word dogs is kuon. By the way, you might want to note this. It's going to be important to know in about two minutes. I promise. The Greek word dogs is kuon. So if you want to transliterate it, K-U-O-N. Kuon. That's the word dogs. That's what a Jew would say about a Gentile walking by. Kuon. <laughs> Jesus didn't use the word. Jesus didn't use the word kuon. He used the word kunarion. What's the difference? Little dog. Puppy. Pet. It's not right to take the people of Israel's bread, me, God's word, and throw it to the puppies. Not yet. That's what he said. The woman clearly understood the affectionate terminology. Listen to what she says, verse 28. She said to him, Yes, but Lord, even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. The mongrel dogs that scavenged outside would not be under the table. Only a cute little puppy pet. A trained dog. A dog that you could have in the house, like my Reggie. Although he's not as well trained as I wish he was. Going back to the food and the digestion thing, that's my dog's problem. But <laughs> A dog under a table is a pet. And, and she recognizes in her response Jesus was a Jew, and of course he had to come first to the children of Israel. Her response is one of great faith. Yes, Lord. But even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. I'll take anything you've got. And she calls Him Lord. I like that. She calls Jesus Lord. Verse 29, And He said to her, Because of this answer, literally because of this word that you have spoken, go. The demon's gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. There's a beautiful, albeit brief, and check this out. Don't don't get lost in the picture. There's a beautiful picture here of the master-pet relationship between Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman. What do you mean, Rick? She has no problem bowing down as a pet to her master. In the same way Sierra does to me. Sierra is my in-law's new dog. And she's an adorable little spaz. She's a little weenie dog. A little black, she's about that long. And if I open the door between our homes, she comes racing down the hall at full bark. And all I have to do is go, Sierra? And she she goes straight down and kind of comes over toward the little fence and her tail is just a wagon. 900 miles an hour. I mean, you you could literally keep a house cool with this tail wagon. She comes over to the fence and she waits there like this until I reach down and pet her. And then she's happy and she just trots off. That's what you just saw with Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman. You see her come before him. And in fact, in Matthew's telling of the story, he says she came and began to bow down before him. She is acting the role of the cunarion, the little pet, the puppy. And Jesus is in the role of the master. 
And that is exactly how it ought to be. i got to take you one step further. Kunarion, there's another word tied to kunarion, which is also tied to kuon. It's a Greek word that fits amazingly with this story as the woman bowed down. Matthew 15.25 says that. She bowed down. What is that word, bow down? Listen, it's the Greek word proskuneo. Proskuneo. What does proskuneo mean? Worship. The word for worship is proskuneo. The woman came and she was worshiping proskuneo before Jesus. Kuneo, where kunerion comes from, proskuneo. Because this word proskuneo means to worship, to bow down, to do homage. But the literal picture of this word in the Greek is like a dog licking its master's hand in obeisance to his master, in deference to his master, like Sierra, you know, head down and just recognize, tail the wagon, because I love my master. I'm so excited my master's going to rub my head. But, but, but bowing down and recognizing how much greater he is than I am. Proskuneo. Jesus said in John 4.22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true proskuneos, the true worshipers, will, proskuneo, worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Why did Mark place this story right here? Remember, Mark is not necessarily chronological. Oftentimes, Mark is thematic. Oftentimes, we see, when we compare Mark to Luke, Luke goes, but, 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 in chronology, laying out Jesus' ministry, pretty much straight one story after another as it happened, Mark jumps around. Mark tells the story of Jesus' teaching here, of his conflict or, or debate with the Pharisees here, and then he'll pull in a story from over here and slide it in right after that. Remember, Mark is probably based on Peter's teaching and preaching in Rome. So why is the story of the Syrophoenician woman bowing down like a little puppy before Jesus? Why is that here? Note the contrast between this woman and the Pharisees back in verse 7 where Jesus says, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. The Pharisees come scrutinizing Jesus. They come against Jesus. They come rebellious toward Jesus, picking and biting at Him. Again, as I said earlier, biting the very hand that would feed them. Kuan. (laughs) They're acting like dogs. This woman, this Hellenistic heathen, finds out who Jesus is, believes in Him, comes before Him, worshiping, bowing down. She knows her place before the Master. Do you? Do we know our place before the Master? Hey, God is not lording it over us. He has every right to be Lord. That's who He is. And we are. We are His cunarion. We are the little puppies. And He loves His puppies. (laughs) He does. He adores each and every one of His children. But the relationship that we have with our Father is that relationship of worship, of bowing. I know in a second, God could crush me if He were a mean-spirited God. 
but he doesn't. He reaches down his hand, and I duck down because he's so great, and I'm so little. And the next thing I feel is his love. And that's the relationship. That is the worshiper's relationship with the Father. Psalm 2, verse 10 says, Do homage to the Son. Literally, kiss the Son. Like kissing the ring of, of great authority or the dog licking the Master's hand. Kiss the Son. That He not become angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. But how blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. Let me finish this up real quickly. Verse 31 again. He went out from the region of Tyre, came back through Zidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of the Decapolis. They brought to Him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty. They implored Him to lay His hand on Him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva, ooh, and looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly, and Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone. But the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. And they were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Just as Isaiah 35 verse 5 prophesied Messiah would make the deaf to hear and the mute to speak, and he just did it. Mark, Peter perhaps, points this out. Look at this. This miracle here is exactly what Isaiah said was going to happen. Now, for time's sake, I'm leaving the rest of this story for Sunday. Think about again, why does Mark put these two healings back to back following the debate with the Pharisees? And I put it to you this way, it's tradition versus tenderness. Tradition would trounce tenderness. But the Lord God comes to you, comes to me tonight and says, I am tender. I'm tender. I will treat you tenderly as a master who loves his little puppies. Jesus does all things well. Amen? All things. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. And I pray You would get Your Word in. And Lord, everything else that we talked about tonight that is not of Your Word would just fall away and be forgotten. Every point, every little clever line or that I thought was clever, Father, would just not be remembered. And I pray only, Lord Jesus, that we would remember Your character and Your nature and Your tenderness and Your compassion. And we would respond to You, Jesus, as Lord and Master, as Savior of our lives. And we praise You tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.